0: Welcome to 50 Years of Rainbow Activism, a podcast about change, love, resilience and the LGBTQI community in Scotland. My name's Dom, and supported by Pink Saltire and Our Story Scotland, I spent a month travelling around the country interviewing members of the LGBTQI community who are aged over 50. In sharing their stories here, we want to celebrate what our community enjoyed today, reflect on what it was once like to be LGBTQI in Scotland, and now what it's like to be seen as a community elder. In this first episode, I want to introduce you to a couple I joined in Glasgow.
1: I'm Michael, I'm 55 years of age and I identify as a gamer. And I'm Charlie, I'm 53 and I identify as a gamer.
0: In part one of their interview, you get to know Charlie and Michael as they discuss that familiar feeling of somehow being different.
2: For me, probably, I always knew it was different in terms of because of my circumstances of childhood. So I was always seen as different in school. Um, but I was also different in that I was not naturally predisposed to play football and other kind of things that people would expect boys of my age to do. And um, I went, I was kind of educated in the Catholic faith, so I went to school where it was very much males and females. It was kind of to the expectation. And although there was probably a small group, and when I say small, I mean under 10 of us, Who didn't fit into that stereotype and hung around together in primary school, and we were very much like an outcast within school. Um, We were tolerated. Some of us were academically able. I probably was academically able, but no applying myself because of, and all I now know about trauma, because because of childhood trauma. But at the time, it was just about surviving. So I always felt different, and I would say probably my peers told me I was gay before I knew I was gay. so in some ways I probably fought harder against it because I felt as though I was being pushed into something. And so it took me a long, long time to accept that I was definitely gay. And I think for me that probably was quite... That was... No, no that's not quite. It was difficult. It was really challenging. Um, so I suppose I tried my best to try and fit in as much as possible and not to be seen as different. So I probably denied the difference.
1: And I suppose slightly differently from my call, uh, despite always thinking that or feeling that I was different and always been a bit strange and didn't quite fit in um i i suppose I played up to that a bit um I was always a bit of a diva and uh, um i suppose in some ways a bit precocious would be one of the words that i would use what my parents were able to give me was a real sense of um belonging to something bigger but not quite fitting in and so I had a an innate confidence in a lot of ways that kind of overlaid any other trauma that I was experiencing um so I was in I'm dram for the age of five and um was in various shows and Um, And because we also were brought up in the church, I was always a youth leader in the church, um, in the boys' brigade, in the um, Sunday school, and uh, we ran a youth club in the church by the time we got to um, central Scotland that was really, really hectic and busy, and so I was always part of that. But I was always kind of part of that at one step removed, and because I didn't need Identify, I think, with anybody else. Uh, I uh, my saving grace at the age of thirteen, though, was when I went to my second high school when we moved. I discovered drama, and I had a fantastic drama teacher who was instrumental in um, helping me identify who I was and uh, start talking about it and start developing an identity that fitted and fitted in, but fitted in as part of the drama club, not as part of necessarily everything else that was happening so sport for example I just was not a, a big thing for me um, it's just amazing how many gay men share that experience as well so yeah I, a sense of being different, a sense of struggle but very internalised and externally I think you'd struggle to see anything unusual other than I was a bit precocious and a bit confident and eh, always had an opinion and eh, always shared it. Um, And then I started my coming out journey when I was 16, so that was 1982, so two two years after legalisation, which felt completely like the right thing to do, um, although it was quite... Strange and daunting, and didn't know anybody else at school that uh, was doing the same. Uh, I was the the first boy at school to dye my hair, and the first boy at school to wear makeup, and um, because um, the I suppose the other thing that happened as well was the the whole um, new, romantics. new romantics, and that was really really helpful because well David Sylvian was a massive crush of mine, and um, Mark Hammond and. People suddenly and who I could relate to, at least visually, um, which was really, really useful. So that, that gave me, although I, again, I don't really fit, I'm six foot two and uh, built like the end of a house. So I've never really <laughs> fitted in, in that world either, but, but it was always my version of. So I, I know, I, the drama club was absolutely a saving grace because it allowed me to be me. And however mixed up that might be, allowed me to do some of that initial uh, thinking through what that meant. I
2: suppose my coming out in terms of that wasn't like that, and um, so all of that was obviously happening for me slightly earlier than you, because obviously you pointed yes. um, i an older line. Yes, but it was um, different. It was really genuinely different. I suppose can I, mean, I mentioned a little about leaving my sister when I was seventeen and. I actually went into kind of shared, supported living arrangement, sharing with other people, and that's actually difficult because it was shared with boys or men, young men, and so again, I was never going to be able, to, I was never going to be in an environment that would allow me to be comfortable enough to be something different from what they were, and I mean they were brilliant guys, and one guy who I still have a kind of passing level of contact with, who were actually as housemates really, really supportive and, and really welcoming and valuing. They could never have, I mean, I think they probably thought I was gay, but they would never have that conversation or created a situation that would have made it okay for me to be gay. Um, At that time, I was working in youth work, so um, I was kind of exposed a wee bit more to the likelihood that there were other gay people within the town that I lived in. And I kind of started to know people and know certain bars that people would go to. But, I mean, I was thinking about this and reading this for this interview, actually, and thinking there was a certain named pub that people would go to but it was like every second week, you know, wasn't it? It's not like the way it is now. So, I mean, actually, and even then, if you mention the name of that pub within the town, people would say, well, that's where the gays go. So there was kind of almost a bit of not going there because of that, because people would associate it, which is really, really difficult. So it took probably until I was in my 20s, I think, early 20s, I moved to Edinburgh, and um, which I now, I now know is the story of everybody. People move to other ends of the world or whatever and I moved to Edinburgh, um, and ironically, I suppose, looking back on it, I'd kind of started to come out with people. I'd made a network of friends in Edinburgh through youth work, and I started to come out to them, and one of those, who's still a very good friend of mine, um, arranged for me to get a room in a flat of her ex-partners, who was transitioning to become a woman. and So I... My first experience of the kind of gay culture or living the gay lifestyle was living with two transsexual women, and um, and that was fantastic. And they were, they were fantastic because they they were obviously going through, they were going through quite a lot of stuff in their self. And we're talking about in the eighties, um, but they were just so welcoming and so accepting, and spent so much time with me just talking. Um, no, and I think that's one of the things that's probably very different from what I see in terms of what young people experience now where there's actually almost a pressure when you decide you're gay to be gay in a certain way um, and actually I don't think I ever got that I got the, that's okay that you're gay but actually you're more than that so for a long, long time whilst I was identifying as gay and starting to dabble for want to be a better description in a gay lifestyle um, it, was just, it was just another facet of my character because I found... Edinburgh in particular at that time would be quite a kind of cosmopolitan place and interestingly enough as an adult I found it be quite a narrow place but actually at that time I found it would be quite cosmopolitan and quite welcoming but I think that's about the state I was living with or, or or being exposed to at that time. So I I really had my eyes opened and in some ways that was really exciting but in other ways was quite frightening as well. But what it also did for me, which I think is very different from Charlie because we've had his coming out discussion before, um, what was different for me was... I was gay in Edinburgh but straight at home and never really told my family until I was much older again so by that time I had then been to university, qualified, had a, had a qualification and was moving back to the West Coast to work and at that point started to talk about who I was as a person which I, I regret and actually having talked to my siblings, who, my surviving siblings, they very much regret because they feel as though they lost me for a long long time and it's not anything they did, it's absolutely nothing they did.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, because I started my coming out journey at home, really, uh, there were two other people that knew before I told my mum and dad, um, and I, I mean, I suppose there's something I need to say as well, that I'm not being completely honest about the years up until I was 16, but that would be much harder to connect with and engage with, and I paid for my therapy, and... I've done some of that work, and uh, but it's there and it's formative in terms of who I was. And I was a mess and I had an eating disorder at different times of my, my adolescence. And uh, I always, I think, as an individual, felt really confused and challenged and like I didn't they fit in but there was an external persona that I had that was very much more about um, just being there, full full frontal centre, you know, and driving things. So it goes back to that kind of latent confidence that I had. And the other thing I had as a a youth, certainly as a young person from 12, 13 onwards, was a sense of political activity and action, So I joined CND when I was 14, and I was very left-wing. I was a Marxist, and um, my politics were also a really defining part of me. So I was able to use that as a bit of a vehicle um, to explore identity as well. Um, When I started coming out to friends and my parents, there was, I think, a general sense of I oh, always knew there was something um, and then a general sense of I did not know what, what they 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 didn't know what they were expected to do or say because when you were speaking Michael about um, now you're presented with well this is what being gay is about mm-hmm. actually we were creating that. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the big drivers in our lives that we were actually building that because there was no um, local network or anything like that. Nothing existed that you could buy into. You were lucky if you maybe knew a couple of people who you might have thought, but by God, you would never have spoken about it. Um, So... What I then got very into thinking was, well yeah, actually we can create something here and, and one of the again another big takeaway from my family life was about community and of course Thatcher was instrumental and in, and in at least I'm um, no not that I could ever, ever describe myself as sympathetic towards uh Thatcher. But she gave you something to oppose. So it was quite helpful because it helped mm-hmm. my identity because mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't that I knew I wasn't yeah. a Tory yeah um, absolutely and that that's a big thing because
2: that's my that's Edinburgh for me. Mm-hmm. That's about when I got to Edinburgh. It was introduction section 28. People were, that's when mm-hmm. there was a big campaign about what was going to happen. And mm-hmm. we wore, the, I mean, and that actually gave us an identity. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible thing to say in some ways, but the pink triangle was mm-hmm. our identity. Mm-hmm. And it, it let us know mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, and actually it let us know anywhere in Scotland, that mm-hmm. people were wearing that, that they were either gay or they supported or opposed the mm-hmm. idea that anybody could introduce legislation which meant that that wouldn't be taught about. And I I think, looking back on it, and I remember having a discussion at at the time as well about, you know, we're we're fighting to stop that being introduced. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, it's not actually happening at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and you'll know, because it was actually all from down south anyway, but the Section 28 was introduced because of what was happening in England we were, Scotland was miles behind that. Scotland, I mean, for God's sake, there was absolutely, and certainly not in the Catholic education system, Mm -hmm. was they ever going to talk about, like, a homosexual relationship Mm -hmm. as being something that was actually okay and appropriate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just was never going to happen. But we were, I suppose what we did see and what it did was, it actually started to form a community. And I suppose, at the same time as that was the HIV and the explosion of um, age-related deaths in Edinburgh uh, at the same time in gay men, which Mm -hmm. Almost in some ways, if you think about it, it could have been the the um, justification for Section Twenty Eight, but in actual fact, brought people together to say no because this is going to make this worse for a community of people mm-hmm. that it shouldn't make it worse Because actually, we
1: need to be compassionate. Absolutely, and and so we ended up creating identities. As we moved forward, there were two other things that were pivotal in my life. At the age of 16, I went on a family holiday to York and we went into a record shop uh, and there was a card in the window saying, uh, do you think you're attracted to uh, men? Uh, there's a support group. And whilst I never got the opportunity to follow that one through, that was a really, really important moment for me, I thinking there are other gay men in the world So that was rounded, but that was just leading up to that initial coming out phase. Um, uh, The the thought that there were others there, that there was something of an identity of a community, and the other one was I bought a book round about the same time called "So You Think You're Attracted to the Same Sex," which was a wee Penguin book and I don't have it anymore, which is really disappointing because it was such an important book. Um, And I saw it advertised, I think in one of my Marxism Today magazines, (laughs) and I bought it, and I went to the bookshop in Stirling, and I bought it. And I I suppose my love affair of books started at that point because I realised the power of the printed word as well in helping you feel part of something. So those two events... Precipitated my coming out. Um, though ironically, um, having then starting from sixteen onwards coming out to people on an ongoing basis, and like you, the pink triangle was central. Then I had another funny story. But went to a charity fundraiser, and I was a student by this point, so maybe about twenty. And my friend was doing face painting, and he said, "Oh." He said, it needs to be a pink triangle, so he put a huge pink triangle on my face. The only thing wrong with that is I'm allergic to almost everything. So I ended up, when I washed the makeup off from the fundraiser I had a big red triangle on my face because I had an allergic reaction to the makeup. So there was no escaping it for me, if you like. But when I went to uni at the age of 18, one of the first things I did was go along to the Gay Sock. So that was 1984. Um, I went to Aberdeen, so unlike yourself being exposed to that, that world of HIV and AIDS in Edinburgh, I then almost kind of isolated myself in Aberdeen unknowingly, but what there was up there was this amazing University Gay Sock, um, and I bought my pink triangle, and I spent four years of my life with a pink triangle in my coat, um, and so it was, a, and it was a conversation starter. People would come up and say, oh, what's that for? And I said, what do you think it's for? And they said, well, we know what it was used for. And I said, well, that's exactly right. Oh, oh, I never knew. So university was fabulous for allowing me to explore, again, who I was, but who I was in a political context, and a sexual identity context, I start of second year, became the chair of the Gay Sock. So again, always precocious. There's a bit of organising to be done. I'll always be first there. Um, I also started speaking very early on in my university career at public meetings in the Central Ref. And there's one politician in particular who uh, is a big part of the Tory party, um, who shall remain nameless, but he and I... Um, went head to head at public meetings almost on a weekly basis because it was he was a young conservative and he was very uh, homophobic at that point in Nepal and uh, I would just stand up in my designer home nets because my mum <laughs> loved to knit she wasn't very good at it but she loved to knit if she ever hears that she'd be horrified <laughs> but, um, so I would stand up in my designer home nets and lay off what I thought was gay politics and it was gay politics because it was me and my experience but it it wasn't coming from a massively informed position so that was the start of my university career so it was very much about gay.
2: And I suppose one of the things I find interesting about that story and and I've obviously heard some of this before but the bit that, that makes it different in terms of my experience and your experience is that in the town that you were living in at the age of 16, you saw a book that you wanted to go and buy and you went to Waterson's and bought it. And mm-hmm. the town that I lived in, mm-hmm. if had, I don't really actually think we had a bookshop, but if we had a bookshop mm-hmm. um, and I'd went to buy that, mm-hmm. I'd have been so worried about mm-hmm. who would have known that I'd bought mm-hmm. that book and how that would have gone back to my family. And and I suppose that's about the different pressures that people face grow, growing so, up. So or, or perceived pressures as well, although it was a pressure. and mm-hmm. um, my, I've had anxiety in the past, of periods of depression, etc., as well, and that's about my paranoia that people are always looking at me because that's how I remember my childhood being, which I think is really significant. Whereas for Charlie, I, I wanted
1: people to look at me. <laughs>
2: no. Yes, I was
1: channeling my inner RuPaul before. I knew uh, uh, no, and I, 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 but that was a defence mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. That, that look at me was actually a defence. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you look at me and see what I'm projecting, but that isn't actually the real me. Uh, it's parts of me at different times, because drama also introduced me to drag. So mm-hmm. in 1983, 84, 85, I was in drag every summer. I, w- I would write pantomimes, and me and my pals in the drama club would put them on, and drag was a very big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um and that that's interesting because that takes me into that world of gender identity and what that means, um, which I've never completely bottomed out or explored, but uh I, I I absolutely identify with what we now see in Drag Race and um RuPaul's world and um that that makes me smile inside as well as out, you know. Um that it's now out there, and but I think it's that ability for people to engage with it if it helps and when it helps that it doesn't become a fi identity I don't think should ever be fixed it's it's all about growth and continuums and development and going back and um it's never it's a never ending process um yeah. But yeah, so from very for de- very different reasons. I'm not pretending that it was the book on the counter. It was one of fourteen books probably, yeah, and it yeah. would all be very well hidden and everything. But there was that bit of me that was no fuck it. I'm going to get this um, book. But it's this also book about, is really important for me.
2: But it's also about how our personalities are different as well, because you are someone where. It's front of brain stuff, so mm-hmm. if it's got to be said.
1: There are no filters. There are no
2: filters. Got to be said. Whereas I am much more circumspect. Totally. I will, I will assess every per- permutation of something before I will make a situation. And in some, and actually, that's probably why we work well together. I agree um, completely. And also, why actually, as as a couple, mm-hmm. we are seen by other people as being fairly. Mm-hmm. On the ball and on the game about a lot of stuff because mm-hmm. normally we, we, we've we had the debate between us before we go anywhere
1: else. Mm. And that really intrigued me about why we signed up to do this interview <laughs> because you led that process. Absolutely. Aye, and yeah. that for me was really, I was like, bloody hell, what's all that about? Mm-hmm. So, um, whereas I, I I got myself painted into a corner about, oh, this bloody LGBT history, but. There's our story as well mm-hmm. that's not getting told.
2: But I think it's also and it's about we've been together twenty four years, another twenty four years. Me. and and one of the bits that's been really challenging throughout that for both of us has been there's no rule book. And there's no rule book for relationships anyway, I don't I don't believe that, but there's no, no public kinda of rule book that kinda of just no. gives you an idea of that other people might be experiencing what we're experiencing. You know, and that has been hard. So there's, we, like, you know, when I look at straight friends and they're struggling in relationships, they'll either talk to their peers or they'll talk to their, their parents or they'll talk to trusted adults in their family. We don't really have that. We we are that for some of the gay people in our families now. But, mm. but, but,
1: and our but log- even logical family. In our,
2: and, and our logical family, but actually in our, our birth family. And even then, mm. that's still hard because it's a bit about, like, well... I'm telling you this, but I actually don't know where that is what it is. Whereas, you know, there's a whole, I mean, the whole thing about being oral history is about there's a tradition. People know that this is how families used to live. This whole bit is new to every family. And um, and we are, in some ways, trailblazers. In inverted commas, because like, it doesn't quite feel like that. Um, but trailblazers, which is, there is no manual. There is absolutely no manual.
1: But likewise, there was no manual for the identity no. being game. What did that really mean in Scotland in the 1980s? There was no manual and there's no manual for, uh, well, a relationship when we met and we made massive mistakes when we met. And massive. Well, I certainly did make that an <laughs> But I made massive mistakes. Um, I um, And I think we are still making it up. As we go along mm. Through discussion and debate My big difference is I'll talk to anybody about it That'll sit still long enough That's that's yeah, my, I, my I world do that. I I'm like do what that. do you think? Mm-hmm. You know I want to know And I read And I absolutely surround myself With everything that I can find That might resonate for me And try and work out um, What I should or shouldn't be doing Or where I go Or what it actually means but and it comes at really rich time now. I'm sitting looking at Fabulosa on the bookcase, and it was it's just such an important book to have been written and um, because Michael and I are both able to say, we came in just at the end of Fabulosa that whole period of we actually as gay men spoke in a different language, mm-hmm. and we have parts of that, yeah and if people hear us interact and they'll kind of look at us askance and camp names and calling each other she or referring to other men as she and all of that (laughs) driven by this need to have a separate identity that was safe so we, we start there and come right up to where we are in 2020 and think oh my god
0: In part two of Charlie and Michael's interview, you hear more about their journey to the year 2020.
2: My, my education was, was out through the pop circuit, was going out and about. Was, so the kind of more bitchy, kind of judgmental side of that as well, About you had to look a certain way, you had to be this,
1: and, which you didn't really get. <laughs> I was in Aberdeen. The whole thing was about being warm. That, that was our raison d'etre, was to stay warm. I lived in a flat in Aberdeen with two coal fires, no central heating. Oh, my God.
0: Find out if Charlie kept warm later in the series. Next, we go to Dundee to talk to Jenny about more than just her taste in films. i also remember
2: vampire movies on the TV. Vampire
1: movies were great women always kissed women. It was the first time you saw that. It was amazing. <laughs> so I love fan movies.
0: Thanks for listening to 50 Years of Rainbow Activism. The series was organised by Pink Saltire, funded by the National Lottery Communities Fund Scotland, and special thanks to Our Story Scotland for archiving our interviews at the National Library of Scotland. To find out more or to get involved in similar projects, please visit pinksaltire.com.